The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Penalty time, that's what it is. Right now on pass, the price of gas skyrocketing. The average price of a gallon now closing in on five bucks. WTI hovering near 120 a barrel, and now Russian production is collapsing. At the same time, China is just restarting after its long lockdown. The crude reality is coming up. Plus, shares of Eli Lilly on the move. The drug giant reporting positive results for two drugs involving diabetes and obesity. The details in the broader pharma impact minutes away. And later, around six, five, seven, eight, I don't know. I've lost track completely. In this bot battle royale between Elon Musk and Twitter, we've got the details on the latest war of words and a new development involving the state of Texas getting involved in this fake account fight. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market side in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Karen Feinerman, and Jeff Mills. We start off with a new record for commodity prices. The Bloomberg Commodity Spot Index hitting an all-time high today. Wheat jumping more than 5%. Nat gas settling at its highest price since August 2008. While crude and gasoline did take a breather today, there are a number of factors that could push prices and demand higher from here. Parts of China, for one, coming back online after long lockdowns. Russian production is falling amid the war with Ukraine. And here at home, the price of the, at the pump is closing in on a major milestone, five bucks a gallon. Add to all of this the 10-year yield going above 3% again today. And you've got a, a melange of factors challenging the markets today, Dan. Melange. Um, yeah, here's the thing. And we didn't even mention unemployment. So Friday we had that May un un unemployment. And, and by all accounts, it sounded like people thought there was like a Goldilocks sort of thing. But I keep seeing headlines about employment. OK, and we're at 40 year lows. We're back to the pre pandemic levels. We have a GDP. We have an economy that's two thirds led by the consumer. So I have a hard time squaring these sorts of things with inflation and the cost of gas and that sort of stuff. We already had Walmart and Target tell us that food inflation and energy inflation is hurting a consumer where the savings rates going high, where consumer credits going up, where unemployment is going up. You saw the Microsoft headline today. You saw what Elon Musk had to say last week. It's happening in large parts of the economy where are not being tracked by publicly traded companies that we talk about. So to me, I think that's something that I think we're going to be spending more time talking about over the next couple months. And if the one thing that a lot of these strategists or economists said, the demand is still here, if you're still banking on that, I think this is the thing that changes the demand over the next few months. I don't think demand is, is drying up overnight. And in fact, we heard that Saudi Aramco has actually raised prices to Asian buyers because of the demand coming out of Asia. And if, if anything, you know, that's something that I think is, is the marginal demand dynamic 
we don't really understand. Certainly for some of the bulks like iron ore uh, and, and, and some of the, the steel derivatives from there. But, I, you know, when I look at the commodity complex, um, I think it's a story about supply. I actually think it's really more about where some of the biggest players in the world, including Russia. So we'll talk about this with Paul Sankey. But even as you get into copper and as you get into other uh, some of the precious metals, but even parts of the aluminum complex, I don't think there's uh, enough supply. And I think you have a dynamic where you're supply constrained. I think I've talked about this for a couple of years now. There's just not been enough investment in the mining sector and in the oil and gas sector. And I think that's a lot of what's going on here. So um, clearly the consumer is going to be, uh, I think, demand constrained and the, the inflation dynamics around gas, et cetera, are a big deal. I just don't think that that's killing it off right now. And I think the, the, the commodity uh, trade for, for investors has still got a lot left to do. Killing economic growth off? Yes. Is that well, what you mean? Yeah, yeah. In other words, the demand destruction that right. comes with the buying power that's eroded at the pump or at the store, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Karen, at what point mm. do you think, you know what, the consumer is going to pay less for X, Y, and Z, and so therefore my investments in whatever retailer or consumer discretionary stock might be threatened because the consumer has to spend more on other things. The consumer is in great shape. I, I, don't, I think people are not going to doubt that, at least for this moment in time. But their spending may shift within their, their wallet. Right. Well, I think you need to bifurcate the consumer, right? Because there's a consumer that gas and food prices, that's going to be, and rent, mm-hmm is going to be a really big portion of their disposable income. So they're going to see, you know, we saw it, I guess, in Walmart and Target, that they're going to see that that consumer is pinched. However, there are other consumers that are not, that are, you know, getting higher wages and uh, they feel like they've made money in their home, although that's sort of plateauing. And I feel like that consumer is still around and still spending money. Um, It's interesting to me, some of the the data for commodities like... um, copper and lumber really more, is really has rolled over, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know that, you know, when I look at something like a Mosaic or a CF, I'm surprised those stocks aren't higher. And it makes me wonder, okay, is there an anticipation of, of food rolling over? I don't know. It's so, it's, a, it's sort of a difficult time because inflation is here. It's really high. We'll see on Friday, it's 8.2 we're looking at. I actually am sort of thinking it's peaky, right? So... I don't know. Dan's giving me the, the evil eye. But, well, I mean, he gives me the evil eye all the time. Oh, and you remember so last week when tell. I said you guys know I'm a big dummy, and I suspect it's peaking. Now, the, 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 the point Those is... Those are rather, two different okay, things. Right, right. Fair enough. <laughs> wow. but, but I think there's plenty of examples over the last year when we've seen those huge spikes, whether it be lumber or other things, where they've kind of rolled off a little bit. And so, uh, you know, again, I mean, my only point is I wasn't really talking about the commodity complex as much. I was talking about consumer demand. And once consumers, mm-hmm. once that housing situation starts to roll off a little bit, there's going to be less demand for Whirlpool washers and dryers, which means there's going to be less demand but for the underlying commodity. But there are more wages to go buy those washers well, and dryers. And but here's I, the thing. I, I, that's the wait, part wait. of the, well, I think the, the wages are higher in some cases, see, but outstripping, the, but is, outstripping inflation. But the, I started I this by saying unemployment. So if we're starting to see a slowdown in employment, that means wage growth is going to start to moderate a great deal. Which and is so exactly so they, what the Fed I, I think, wants, by the way. I think the unemployment rate. That's exactly yes. what the Fed wants. Soft landing. Unemployment rate is going to go down the next couple of months, in my view. Again, we saw this last number. The only reason it was saved from going a little bit lower. So in other words, less unemployment. Um, is because of the participation rate. I like I I I think employment's going to be a problem. I don't think it's in the next couple months. And I think it's the biggest part of the inflation profile that the Fed has to fight, too. The, the wage gains is not necessarily even chicked into the parts of the economy that I think it's you know, going to stay longer. Jeff, where do you fall on all this? So I hate to agree with Dan, but I guess I'm going to have to here. <laughs> you know, looking at... <laughs> 
Looking at some of the business confidence data, I, th- I think is, is super interesting because you have business confidence down. I think you know, that's part of the reason you are starting to see signs of slower wage growth. And you combine that with what I do agree is peaking inflation, but still high inflation. Uh, and that means even less purchasing power for the consumer. And I think you've started to see that in some of the credit data. It looks like the consumer is again starting to binge on credit. We're back to those pre-pandemic levels. So that can't last forever. And ultimately, you're going to see that flow through into consumer demand and then to earnings. And I think that's part of the dynamic of why I keep hammering on the cyclicals. And I've, you know, I've pointed out the transports that you know, they've broken, the URIs, the Deers, the Vulcans. They've all broken down technically. And, and even looking at an Alcoa or U.S. Steel, you know, they're kind of teetering on technical support. So I wonder what will happen there. And I think that's all part of this dynamic that we're talking about. It's a corollary to that thought, Jeff, that the commodity trade will roll over. I feel like there there are some specifics to the commodity trade because to Tim's point, you know, you have supply demand issues that are not going to change anytime soon. You know, supply was determined, you know, many many quarters ago in terms of investment and production. So you're going to have constrained supply. We obviously have the Russia issue, and I do think China coming back online uh, may serve to offset some of these demand issues. Uh, that I'm talking about. China is going to lean into growth. I think uh, from a monetary policy standpoint, they want to see growth between now and the end of the year. I think that keeps oil prices elevated. And a lot of these companies, you know, whether you're talking about a Chevron, an Exxon, you know, go down the list, they are profitable at much higher levels. And even though their prices are high, their valuations are not. So I think you can still play in that space, even though they're technically extended. If they pull back, I would buy that weakness. All right, let's get more on this with uh, Paul Sankey, president and lead analyst at Sankey Research. Paul, great to see you. Hi. You know, the the last time we talked to you, China's lockdowns were still firmly in place, and and now they're largely lifted. And it seems like that could be the incremental factor. If you thought things were tight before and that oil was going to remain high before, it seems like it should theoretically, your forecast should be even higher today based on the lockdowns coming off. Yeah, I mean, I think if you remember maybe a couple of times back, really post the Ukraine invasion, we started saying 110 to 150 uh, this summer dollars a barrel of Brent. And as you know, we sort of dipped down actually towards 100 at one point. But uh, again, now you're firmly back in that range. And with China coming back in, and I think the other very bullish thing here is that actually Russia has continued selling oil. So we actually haven't lost the Russian crude. We've lost the Russian oil products, but the actual crude has stayed elevated, as has the natural gas. Um, and we haven't had China in. So the, the other setup is still very bullish and challenging for all your inflation concerns, I have to say. Hey, Paul, it's Tim. I, I think Brent or crude, depending on what you're looking at, is going to 140 at least. And I, you know, I, I hear this whole dynamic with Russia uh, in terms of their ability to produce that are really falling off. So swing capacity. What's out there? Because uh, that, to me, is the marginal movement in the oil price from here. Well, as you know, for the past decade, we really relied on U.S. growth, and, and the U.S. is not growing. And that's super significant in natural gas markets right now. We're somewhat pondering whether Bitcoin mining may be affecting the U.S. gas production numbers. But U.S. natural gas, is, as you know, is up at $9 per MMBTU. And I was discussing it uh, with a major client today, and he was asking, you know, do you seriously think we could go to $20 per MMBTU? Most brokers will be using a forecast for next year of like four. So, you know, there is risk, enormous risk to the upside in all these commodity markets. And we're just not seeing much sign of demand destruction. Again, further to your comments about Walmart, etc. Really, we're not seeing significant oil demand destruction globally. 
or natural gas demand destruction. And so these prices remain, you know, under significant upward pressure. Paul, it's Karen. Uh, let me first congratulate you. You made a call, Long Marathon Short Rivian, which was fantastic on both sides. And so I'm going to put you on the spot mm-hmm. right now. What, what pairs trade would you have? I don't know if there's another elevated sector like Rivian at the time, but putting you on the spot, what pairs trade do you have? Actually, Rivian got all the way down to its, its cash, well, more or less to its cash and its balance sheet, but then bounced back up and we put the trade back on. Uh, the one I've been talking about is more conceptual, as you know, is generally long oil, short tech or short NASDAQ. And we've been talking just out of interest that both Exxon and NVIDIA have about the same market cap. The problem with NVIDIA, as you know, is a very good company with a really good CEO. So, you know, I don't want to hate on it too much, but the conceptual uh, theme of, of multiples compressing uh, will continue to favor the oils over basically the NASDAQ. Another interesting one to me is, you know, a great company like Microsoft. If you look at its share of the S&P 500 earnings, it's at about the same level uh, as it was five or six years ago. The entire move in the stock was multiple expansion. So if we get into a rising interest rate, a rising cost of capital market, these very big, even very good companies can continue to go down. Whereas, as you said, something like Exxon, I just checked next year's earnings. It's, it's, scheduled, it's a forecast to make 10 bucks. Um, you know, I think it could make 14 and the stock's at 100. So, you know, it's at 10 times an earnings number that looks too low. Paul, mm-hmm. great to see you. Always great to get your thoughts and your pairs trades. Those are always fun. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Paul, thank you. Thank you, research. Um, and in case you, you heard it and thought you heard wrong, yes, Paul did say that one reason why nat gas is so elevated may be the bounce back in Bitcoin mining. I had to sort of do a double take, but that was that was an interesting dynamic there. Um, Jeff Mills, what do you what do you think? I mean, if if oil and energy prices remain elevated, you know, uh, that's a real drag on the consumer. We may have hit peak. I mean, we, we've heard this before. Peak is great. But what happens after peak? That's the problem. Yeah, right. Peak is one thing. But, you know, what is inflation going to look like going forward? And it's unlikely the prices are certainly going to come down to any large degree. So, um, yes, that's going to continue to be an issue. And I think for all of the reasons that we just pointed out, oil remains elevated. And that's a good thing for a lot of these stocks that are trading at pretty low multiples. I mean, Chevron is, is one example. We just talked about Exxon, but, you know, all-time high prices, but 11, 12 times forward and potential upside to earnings we're just talking about. So, I mean, there is value here. And I also agree in the sense that you know, I've been talking about legging into quality growth, and I think that that's probably a good trade between now and the end of the year. But look at some of these charts right now. I think, you know, to say that this is more than kind of an oversold bounce or a technical bounce, it might be a bridge too far if you're talking about the very short term. Um, you know, semiconductors right back to that downward sloping 50 day moving average. NVIDIA, the same thing. Spot, the same thing. So, you know, we're at difficult technical levels. So I'll be very interested to see how some of those growth names perform you know, over the next few weeks. Yeah. And we mentioned at the top, the 10 year yield going back above 3 percent. I mean, that that certainly threw some cold water on what had been early in the session, at least, you know, what could have been construed a market rally of 1% pretty much across the board, Tim. Yeah, 321, I think, is the high from November 8th. And, and you know, we've challenged that a couple times. And so really do look like we're pushing to that fresh level. Dollar also looks like it's, it's found some support and is pressing higher. Uh, agree. Uh, a lot of those charts, whether you're looking at a, uh, a relative value between the NASDAQ and the S&P, that's at major long-term support. If you're looking at a number 
number of different places where uh, even Apple has crossed over the 50 has crossed over the 200 day. We haven't seen that kind of a bearish cross in Apple outside of, uh, I, I guess, COVID lows, but really since 2018. So these are things that to me and just quickly, energy, energy. To overweight, that should be concerning you. It's a great thing for energy because it's 4.7% of the S&P, uh, and I think it can be a lot more. Yeah, just, you know, Paul mentioned Microsoft, and you just mentioned the dollar, and we had that pre-announcement. I know we talked about it a lot <clears throat> last week, but, you know, it's interesting. Here's a stock that is going to guide in a couple months or a month and a half or so for their fiscal 2023 and the first quarter of that year, and they already kind of eked out a little bit of the bad news, and, and I'm wondering if they take down the full-year guidance a little bit. Again, coming talking about demand. You know, here's a company that's expected to grow earnings and sales 13% in this year, in this out year, trading about 25 times. That's expensive. So if a lot of that move, if we're looking at it as a percentage of the share of the S&P 500 earnings has been multiple expansion, well, then you could make the case where Microsoft should maybe trade, I don't know, 18, 19 times in a difficult demand environment. And, you know, that is what's happened in Apple a little bit. Apple was also trading at 28 times expected earnings growth, about 8%. That was a couple months ago. That multiple's come in because the prices come in. The earnings have not yet, and we're going to see that in the next two months. It's an interesting time. There are so many cross-currents, right? All this inflationary stuff makes you think, all right, the Fed has just got to stay hawkish, hawkish, hawkish. And when we do see them hawkish, the market seems to like that, which I find kind of perplexing. Mm. I don't know. I I feel like in the last couple of weeks, the sense that the Fed might have to let up was part of support for the equity market. I feel like they were out hawks on parade. Look, I I think we all want to see the Fed more hawkish. Mm -hmm. And and I think ultimately that's a sign that also they feel they can be more hawkish because the economy will. I don't know. I feel like Brainerd was very hawkish for for, for the dove of the doves. Master, who's been hawkish generally, has continued to pound the hawk call, whatever that is, whatever hawks say. It is hard (laughs) to sort of game this out, so to speak, because, you know, the Fed can be hawkish and then we get unemployment numbers that were, you know, better than expected. And so unemployment meaning more jobs. More, more, more people working. More people okay. working. Less joblessness. Sorry, yes. Sorry, yeah. okay. Double negatives. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> meaning that more people are working. People get sort of happy about that. But that's we need to see that slowdown. We need to see the economy the, the, as a byproduct, a bit, not as, as a byproduct right, right. of what the Fed is trying to do. So, you know, in, in terms of figuring out what the market reaction would be. I don't know. You tell me something. I don't know if I can. Well, I mean, I can't guess anything. I'm not a market participant. But you guess. You, I mean, you're, it's, it's, you do more than guess around here. We do the guessing. You actually seem to know what you're talking about. It's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to game out. I just say quickly, and Dan brings this up, and I maybe he's not saying it like this. One of the things I think Microsoft has an issue with and Apple has an issue with is because you can prorate their 10 to 15 percent growth over the next 10 years. You can't do that. At some point, they're 20 percent of the U.S. economy. I mean, the law of large numbers for these companies dictates to me that they can't grow at that rate, even though that's what we wanted to think for the last three years. Jeff Mills, last word here. Do you think we have a, another shoe to drop? I mean, Dan was alluding to Microsoft having to talk about demand in the coming quarter that they're going to report. So I, I 100% agree that that's the issue. You have not seen that E contract. You have not seen that denominator contract. Uh, we talked about Apple before. This is a number of weeks ago. BK brought this up. You know, three of the largest smartphone makers in China uh, reduced their production forecast for the coming quarter. So, you know, what does that say for Apple, right? You need to see a contraction in that E. I think you probably will. And it's already trading at a multiple that's above its average by quite a bit. So I think the combination means there's probably more pain ahead for some of those stocks. All right, coming up, here comes the sun. Not only is it the anniversary of the Beatles' first recording at Abbey Road Studio, it's also a huge day for solar stocks to tell you what had those names shining bright. Plus, Eli Lilly making headlines with some positive drug results. So we're checking up on the pharma trade next when Fast Money returns.
Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Eli Lilly finishing in the green but well off its highs today. The company showing encouraging results for its obesity treatment. Meg Terrell joins us now with the details. Hi, Meg. Hey, Melissa, this is a drug called terzepatide, and Eli Lilly actually already has it approved for type 2 diabetes. Uh, but this was a trial in weight loss in people who don't have diabetes. We'd already seen the top line results, but now the full results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine and presented over the weekend at a diabetes conference. And just to recap, this is what they found. On the highest dose, uh, people lost an average of 23% of their body weight over 72 weeks. That compares with 2.4% uh, for folks on placebo. And to put that into more real terms. People weighed an average of about 230 pounds when they started this trial. And on the high dose, that equated to about 50 pounds of weight loss uh, over the course of this trial. You just don't see these types of results typically with obesity drugs from uh, the pharma industry's attempts in the past. The New England Journal of Medicine also published an editorial along with these results saying, quote, it's remarkable that the magnitude of weight loss with terzepatide was similar to that of gastric bypass, which raises the potential for alternative medical approaches to the treatment of obesity. Uh, Mel, this is part of a class of drugs um, that there's also one from Novo Nordisk uh, that has really improved the weight loss results we've been seeing. And you can look back to the end of April. That's when we saw the top line results from Eli Lilly. Initially, uh, we did get some more, even more positive information in this full set of results. Uh, You can see Eli Lilly has been outperforming Novo over the last month and a half. This will potentially compete, although they do need to apply for FDA approval in obesity. And then, of course, the next hurdle is getting insurance to pay for it. No. Yeah. Are there safety? I mean, the, the, the problem with past treatments are the safety concerns and the, and the, you know, the side effects. Yeah, absolutely. The safety concerns. And then it just really didn't work that well. Here we saw GI issues. They were typically characterized as mild to moderate and and usually transient, typically in the beginning when you're starting treatment. Uh, They didn't seem to be things that really caused a lot of discontinuations from the drug. But there there are certain, certain things to think about. And how much do these populations overlap in terms of this drug being used in a diabetic population and then a population that is not diabetic but overweight and, you know, the the migration of those people to becoming diabetic? And I'm wondering if there's sort of a lot of overlap there. And so, therefore, the market, the total market for the drug may not be as big as one might think. 
Yeah, there certainly is an overlap. And actually, one of the additional data points we saw is that uh, the drug in this trial in weight loss reversed prediabetes for most of the people who were taking it. Uh, But just to give you a sense of the potential size just in obesity, at least according to BMO, $6 billion in peak sales forecast just for obesity. Uh, Learing has estimated, SVB Learing, $14 billion total for this drug in terms of all the indications together. So you can see how that's kind of breaking down. Hey, Meg, it's Karen. Thanks for the story. Do you know if obesity on its own, why is that harder to get a prescription for? There's an article recently, I think it was in the Times, about they'll reimburse as a, as, you know, for a diabetic, but not for an obese person. Why is that? Well, there's a whole controversy over, you know, obesity being a disease. Should it be just treated with lifestyle interventions? Uh, A lot of big conversations happening about that. And the big question has been, what are the outcomes? Does this actually lower your risk of heart disease, of chronic kidney disease, of other uh, outcomes? Uh, And so there's a question, will there need to be sort of those kinds of cardiovascular benefits proven from a weight loss drug before insurance will pay for it? Or will insurers say, okay, the benefits can be seen just in lowering weight and we will reimburse for it? Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. Jeff Mills, how do you feel about Lilly? Well, I mean, based on the current state of affairs, I would think that the addressable market is probably pretty large. But maybe the stock reaction today is even more interesting. I mean, this seems like a pretty big deal. And the stock was up maybe 60 basis points, underperformed the overall market or maybe outperformed by a bit. Um, but sort of interesting and maybe speaks to the strength of, of any rallies that we're seeing in the broad market. But listen, I, I think pharma generally is the strongest part of healthcare. care. You're, you're kind of in a position of strength. You're not below the 200-day moving average. You can't say that for a lot of areas of the market. Um, look, Lilly is a great chart. Uh, it's not cheap here. It's already outperformed some. So I've been focusing a little bit more maybe on a name like Merck. It broke above 90. Now it's testing it from the upside. So I'd pay attention to that if it holds. I would view that as a really good sign. Um, Bristol Myers, a huge, a huge base here. Can it break above 75? I think if it does, you have more upside there. So those are some of the other names that I'm paying attention to, just given the fact that Lilly's already outperformed some and is on the expensive side. I think the expensive valuation is something that, that certainly it's deserved even before this announcement. And, and again, though, you throw this into the pipeline and there's some analysts out there saying 14 billion in sales by 2030. Um, this is an extraordinary moment. But if you look at healthcare and the overweight and where you know, Lily's up 58 percent on a year over year. So you've had a major move 36 times forward, not cheap. Uh, and there are other places in the space that I think you get a much better valuation. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Oh, darling, there's something in the way these solar stocks come together. On the anniversary of the Beatles' first stepping foot in Abbey Road Studios. So which solar name is the real Sun King? Plus, China Tech on the move. The K-Web ETF surging as China reopens and DD crackdown comes to an end. The traders are digging in on the China trade. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. Solar stocks soaring. The Biden administration announcing it will suspend tariffs on solar panel products from several Southeast Asian nations for two years. This comes after a months-long probe from the Commerce Department investigating whether Chinese solar producers were circumventing tariffs. At the same time, the administration will use the Defense Production Act to promote domestic manufacturing of solar products. So is there a here comes the sun moment for the industry? At least for today there was. Let's welcome Steve Fleischman, senior analyst at Wolf Research. Steve, great to have you with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You make, you make the point that there had been a, a severe underperformance of a certain group of solar stocks because of the Department of Commerce investigation. Now, now that that gap should close, um, how much, I mean, should it close all the way? Because this is for two, two years are the new tariffs. And so in the Department of Commerce does say that the investigation will proceed. Yeah, that's right. No, this is a, this is a big relief of a overhang that's been on the sector for several months. The, uh, you know, basically all, most of the solar projects in the U.S., at least the, you know, 80% or so that use panels from overseas have been put in limbo. So this will allow those to move forward and get done. And it gives two years for the supply chain to kind of reset itself, which we think will be enough time so that when we get to the end of it, you know, we'll see uh, solar projects move forward, you know, just under whatever tariffs there may be. Right. Tariffs are a big issue, but so are costs. And so I'm wondering, Steve, does any of this help, you know, the, the inflationary pressures being felt by solar projects across the board, whether it because, be because of labor or because of higher raw material costs? Yeah, no, this helps a lot uh, because, uh, you know, basically the delays were raising costs and uh, creating all sorts of supply chain problems. And ultimately, these costs are going to be borne by U.S. consumers uh, uh, who are, you know, buying solar power in the end. So it's very helpful to resolve this. And we, we think there's plenty of runway to grow solar and other renewables in this energy environment. Uh, the energy price spikes have lifted power prices to levels where, you know, you can absorb a lot of cost pressure, inflation pressure, and still want to build wind or solar better than any other option. Hey, Steve, it's Tim. So help us do really what our job is, in it, which is that solar really outperformed uh, from, say, mid-2020 through as we got into 21. And it's done very little in the last nine months as the energy trade uh, in crude and oil has really picked up steam and actually would make the argument for solar that much stronger. Some of it, the dynamics you're talking about. And then ultimately, give us a you know, somewhat of a balanced or a diversified solar play like a Nextera or the names you like the most. Yeah. No, that's right. And just want to make one point just on performance. So you're right. Solar was doing really poorly in the sector, overall clean energy doing really poorly. And then once the Russia-Ukraine 
war started, we started seeing a little bit of a turn, um, particularly versus the NASDAQ and, and broader indices. So started to turn a little bit, but nowhere near as well as energy stocks. And we think people should view solar and clean energy as kind of a second derivative play on energy. Obviously, these companies are not benefiting from high commodity prices and selling at higher and higher commodity prices, but the opportunity to, to grow the business when conventional power prices, uh, gas prices are so high, there's just a lot of headroom to grow more renewables. Uh, and uh, we think that's going to show up now that some of these kind of political overhangs are slowing down. We even think we could see some movement on the Build Back Better uh, law here in the next few weeks, too, which has pretty much been left for dead, but it's it's not dead yet. So keep an eye on that. Uh, we think Nextera is the best way to play uh, utility scale, large scale renewables and solar. They're the, they're the largest player in the U.S. in wind, solar, battery storage. And we think you're, are best positioned in terms of just scale uh, to, to be a leader in the sector going forward. All right. Steve, thanks for your thoughts. We do appreciate it. Thanks so much. Jeff Mills, do you view solar and the related stocks as energy alternatives? I guess it's a would you rather. (laughs) (laughs) I I would certainly rather traditional energy at this point. Listen, I think this was a perfect time for this to be announced for a lot of these companies because you're having this risk on moment. So that's helpful. And a lot of these stocks and even the industry as a whole was already at support and starting to rally before all of this. If you look at TAN, the ETF or Run or First Solar, all of these stocks were bouncing, bouncing off support. Now you have this additional push to the upside. But when I think about this market, I think this ultimately gets caught up in the unprofitable growth trade. Look at a stock like Sunrun. It's had a huge move, but you have negative EPS even in the out year, still a lot of unknown. So this this releases a pressure valve, and that's good for the time being. Um, so yes, maybe play it as a trade. You get a bit more upside. But I worry about unprofitable growth between now and the end of the year. Simply on the 10 ETF, you know, a move above 80 may actually cement a double bottom here. Look at that. It's breaking above the 200. The technicals on this look really interesting. Steve knows a lot more about solar than I will. But on the Build Back Better, I think It is dead, dead, dead. No chance of resurrection ever at all. Wow, sounds positive. Yeah. (laughs) Coming up, China Tech taking off and hitting a two-month high. So how should you play this group? we got the details next, plus a stock split that truly delivered. Amazon getting a pop after the e-commerce giant's 20-for-1 split. So what is the impact in the options pits? We're getting a a primer. Primer? Primer? From Mike Cohen, just a few. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. The K-Web China Internet ETF jumping 4.7% today as Beijing becomes the latest city to ease COVID lockdown restrictions. K-Web also moving higher on reports that Chinese regulators are ending their probe of ride-hailing giant Didi. That's not closing more than 24% higher. So could this be an inflection point for China tech? 
basically they're they're unlocking the handcuffs on Didi, Dan. Yeah, the problem is that they've been on for a long time, and they could go back on whenever. And you know, we 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 used to spend a lot of time talking about this group, and I think the pandemic threw it in in a whole nother kind of range. And then we had that bit of time with with TikTok and and what what we might do for something like that. So to me, I just think it's really kind of uninvestable for every great story. And I know Tim's followed this space really closely for a long time. For every great story over there, now they're starting to trade at these discounts to to our names here because of that uncertainty as it relates to regulatory. So to me, I just don't find any of them particularly interesting. And I know the idea of servicing that emerging middle class in China is absolutely amazing. But at the same time, if we're going to have this kind of bipolar world with China and our tech giants aren't really going to be allowed in there, at least digitally, I'm not sure it makes sense from the U.S. standpoint to invest in those names here. I'm kind of intrigued by Baba, actually, at this point. I mean, I, you know, what? I've been nibbling Baba over the last couple of weeks. I feel like the rhetoric has definitely changed, Right. right? And the COVID shutdown seems to be lifting as well. That also just as it as relates to the business, forget about the rhetoric. But I, both of those things are interesting to me. And yet the stock isn't that far off of its bottom. So I'm looking at it. I haven't bought it yet, but I'm intrigued. So my only point, really, I don't mean to interrupt. Amazon was just down. Amazon just got cut, in, got cut in half in the last year. So you can have Amazon down 50% cut in half, or you can buy Alibaba, which is down a lot more, but still, we have no idea. We don't even know where Jack Ma is. You know what I'm saying? So That's like, actually, do you understand my but point? We don't need to know where Jack Ma is. That may be a good actually. thing. Yeah. I mean, he's, well, I mean, and I well, mean, I know, in that I, I think we've, we've kind of quietly, he's no longer bigger than than China. And, and in fact, he really was on a global stage. I, you know, more importantly, maybe are the technicals here. You haven't seen this K-Web above the, above the 100 day, let alone the 50, which it blasted through in, in a year. And so so the, the, the tone change here is at least noticeable in terms of the charts. Uh, I think you can buy an ETF because I think you, you actually have uh, diversification. But I think in Alibaba, which may be more in the eye of the storm, but I, I think you're actually not as exposed to some of these outlier names. The top five in the K-Web are Tencent, Alibaba, JD, Metuan, um, Baidu. And, and I think those are big, big companies that will be here tomorrow. Once upon a time, Jeff Mills, it was viewed that the way to play China growth would be through U.S. multinational companies like a Starbucks or a Nike with access to the Chinese market and this exploding, you know, wealth in China. And I'm wondering if at this point in time, with the rhetoric from Beijing seeming to change and sort of what's going on geopolitically between the U.S. and China, if, if in your view, the better trade might actually be a Chinese national champion, because at least you've got that going for the stock. Yeah, I think that might be the case right now. And I sort of agree with what Dan is saying, though, relative to the risk. But I think you could apply that to some of the U.S. companies as well as the Chinese companies. I mean, you're working with a different level of risk now. Uh, To use Dan's words, you know, the handcuffs could be put back on at any moment, which sort of confuses me. And maybe Tim has a better insight into this than I do. When I look at the K-Web, it's 50 percent down from its levels in 2018. But the P.E. to me actually looks higher. So the entire index doesn't appear to be as cheap as maybe you would think, given the price move. But there are stocks like Baba that are a lot cheaper. You know, the P.E.'s been cut in half. You know, even if even if it, uh, it claws back half of its uh, previous P.E., that's about a 40 percent upside from here. So I think there are areas of the market where these problems have been discounted, Baba being one of them. And to my point earlier, what has not been discounted is broad based stimulus, which I think you're going to see.
Coming up, Amazon jumping in its first day after a 20-for-1 stock split. So how are options traders priming themselves? The details next and throughout June. We are celebrating Pride Month. Here's CNBC producer Joey Caruso. For Pride this year, I'm celebrating a long-fought history, understanding, love, and equality. I consider myself a late bloomer. It wasn't until five years ago I finally accepted who I am. And since then, my life has accelerated. Breaking generational habits that say it's not okay to be gay, it is okay. You are okay, and you always were. Put yourself first, and everything else will fall into place. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Amazon in the green in the stock's first trading day on a post-split basis. The stock split doesn't fundamentally change anything about the stock, but the gains aren't surprising. Since 1980, the average stock tends to outperform the S&P 500 on a three-month, six-month, and 12-month basis after splitting. And the split has an effect on the stock's options as well, of course. So, Mike, what'd you see today? Yeah, when the stock splits, so must the options. So when we're taking a look at options, the first thing we need to do is adjust the strike prices of options. So in a 20 for one split, you take the strike, you would divide it by that 20. So the 2600 strike last week becomes the 130 strike this week. Of course, we've increased the number of shares. Options are going to follow suit. So if you owned one call contract, now you own 20 call contracts. So when we see all of this, of course, we're going to expect the contract quantity that trades on any given day to increase. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is actually trading more in terms of premium or notional value. And indeed, that's what we saw today. We traded over 2.6 million contracts in Amazon. So in contract terms, at least, that made it the busiest single stock option. But if we were trading 20 times the 300,000 contracts, it traded on average last week and in the weeks prior, we actually would have seen almost 6 million contracts traded. The busiest contract today was the 130 strike calls that expire at the end of this week. Over 200,000 of those traded for about $1.68 a contract. And buyers of those contracts are obviously betting that Amazon can surpass the 128.99 price that we saw today, getting above 130 by the end of this week. Thank you, Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, Elon Musk versus Twitter, round 10. I don't know, lost count. Tesla CEO threatening again to walk away from his deal to buy the social media site while he says the company is thwarting him when Fast Money returns. Here's a tip for your money, your future. Contributing to your 401k, even when the market is volatile, allows you to continue to take advantage of dollar cost averaging. You're investing your money in equal portions at regular intervals, no matter how the market is doing. And that means when the market is going down, you're buying more shares with the same amount of money. And when the market recovers, you have more shares going up. So you're also not risking a lump sum all at once. For CNBC, I'm Sharon Epperson. Welcome back to Fast Money. Elon Musk threatening again to walk away from his deal to buy Twitter, saying the social media company has thwarted his attempts to get information on fake accounts. And now the Texas attorney general is launching a probe into Twitter. It is looking into whether bots are deceiving consumers and businesses. Gene Munster is following all these developments. He is managing partner of Loop Ventures. Uh, you're out at the WWDC, Gene. Um, great to have you with us. Um, you say you're surprised Twitter stock is not down more. You think this deal is ultimately going to be scrapped at this point? 
Well, the odds are going down, Melissa. I joined you a couple weeks ago, and I suggested there's a 70 percent chance that this gets done. I've revised that to 50 percent, so it's a toss of the coin. But if you do the weighted, the reason why I think shares should be lower, if you do the weights of what potentially could happen, I think there's a, there's a weighted 10 percent downside. Before, I was thought it was kind of a flattish outcome. So I simply think that this is uh, purely for entertainment purposes. I would not advise trying to play this from a trade perspective. It, it seems like obviously there's a big factor of whether or not the deal goes through, Gene, in terms of the impact on the price. But then even separate of that, let's say Twitter standalone, there's a huge question mark now over how many accounts the company actually has. And so I'm wondering if you if you needed to separate these two things, you know, how much is that to the stock, that piece of the puzzle that maybe all the accounts that it says it has may not be there? I don't think it has much of an impact on the stock at this point. I think that this is the other piece to this. The two developments today is the probability of this deal getting done are going down. The second development is this is increasingly becoming politicized, and I think that Elon's influence is, uh, I think, and display here. And I think that it's not about the number of bots that they have, ultimately. I don't think Elon is really concerned whether it's 5 or 6 or 8 percent bots. He says it's 20. I think that would be a difficult number to prove. But I think what's at stake here is some principle around frustration that Elon has with Twitter and how they've performed uh, the type of information they've shared with him. They say they've been forthright. I think that that is what is really gnawing at this. And ultimately, Elon's influence, uh, how famous he is, is going to have a profound impact on the valuation of Twitter. And so you need to separate yourself from the fundamentals. The fundamentals are being negatively impacted by all this chatter. But I think at the end of the day, as investors, I think their vote of confidence is going to be diminishing here, too, not because of any bot numbers, but just because uh, now we've uh, politicized this uh, between the left and the right. Gene, thank you. Great to see you, Gene Munster, Loop Ventures. Dan. You know, Gene has had this thing from day one. I mean, literally, the the probability of this happening, the seriousness of the bid, and now, you know, all of this coming out. I I just keep going back to this, is that, you know what, Snap just had a really bad quarter, and they're going to probably guide very poorly, and Twitter's going to do the same when they come out, and that really, the the existing business. Now, I know that Elon's not trying to buy it, if he is trying to buy it, for the existing business, but I just look at these two assets, Snap and Twitter, and I say Twitter with a 30 uh, billion plus enterprise value, and Snap, which I think is a much better company, with a 24 it makes no sense. And something's got to give there. So either the company is going to renegotiate the deal at, at a much lower price and get it out of their hands, or there's something that has to give between these two valuations. I suspect Twitter goes lower. Though. Depending on how the markets are overall trade, I mean, 420 may not be so, you know, or $42. Uh, 42. Or some, right. or some derivation of that may not be that off the number, at this point. Of course, being 420. Right. right. The number being 420. Well, if you look at Twitter, so Twitter's flat to where he made his announcement, yeah. right? And, and NASDAQ's down about 15% from that point. So, and I think Jeff, the general, was making this point on one of our calls earlier today. I mean, to what extent um, would tri- Twitter at true value? Plus, we've now illuminated that there's no real buyer. Plus, there's some question right. about bots. You know, it doesn't sound good, but. All right. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade, the general. So I'd be careful with banks here. I think I'd take my 10% rally, reduce exposure. I think earnings pressure is going to make more upside difficult. Karen. Yes, so as great as the Lily news is, I actually think Merck, which I know the general likes as well or is looking at, is good right here. Bye. Tim. 
The downtrend in Alibaba from October of 2020 looks like you've just inched above that. Interesting. Start with one. Dan, Nathan. Uh, yeah, if I was on Twitter, I'd be selling calls against it. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Meantime. Do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer from the West Coast starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.